Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Steve Schindler and Katie Wilson-Milney, partners at Schindler, Cohn, and Hockman LLP, a litigation and art law boutique in New York. Steve and Katie, who are the co-hosts of the Art Law Podcast, talk about crime and sanctions busting related to the approximately $65 billion art, antiquities, and cultural objects industry. And they touch on the role that financial institutions can play in uncovering the illicit trade in the art market. I hope you find the podcast interesting and informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. It's my pleasure today to have Steve Schindler, founding partner at Schindler, Cohn, and Hockman, a litigation and art law boutique in New York, and Katie Wilson-Milney, who is a partner at Schindler, Cohn, and Hockman also. Together, they are the co-hosts of the Art Law Podcast. Great to have you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Karen. You know, I think that for my audience, this is a fascinating topic one that they are peripherally involved in, and that's crime in the art markets. The thing that I think drew me in initially was just all of the news items that I see, all of the talk of repatriation of, I guess there's several ways to look at this. It's uh, artworks, antiquities, and cultural objects. Is that my imagination that there's a real uptick in those things? It's not your imagination. I think it's absolutely the case. There are really sort of three areas of repatriation that we're involved in and that you're reading about. One is a continuation of repatriation of Nazi looted art. This was art that was taken in one way or another by the Nazis during World War II. And in 2016, Congress passed and Barack Obama passed the so-called HERE Act, and that extended the statute of limitations for people to bring claims for Nazi looted art on a federal level. And because of that, and because also that that extension sunsets in 2027, we have seen a number of new claims for Nazi looted art. The second category would be what what I would view as archaeological looting. And these are usually antiquities that have been excavated in certain countries. And those countries have what we call patrimony laws which basically say that any object that comes out of the ground of some cultural significance after a certain date belongs to that country. Turkey has such a law. Egypt has such a law. There are a lot of countries also in South America that have those kinds of laws. And we see a much more aggressive use of those laws to try to recover cultural objects that surface here, either by the countries themselves or by law enforcement agencies here in the U.S. And the third, which is a little bit uh, more recent, what we see are the examination by cultural institutions, particularly of objects in their collections that originate often now in countries in Africa, but other countries as well, that were taken out of those countries during colonial rule under circumstances that I think we would view as oppressive. And this is a very complicated area because there really isn't any law that governs uh, the return of these objects that were taken many, many years ago. But right now, I guess we would say that it's a combination of ethical and political and PR kinds of concerns 
that institutions are listening to and reviewing their collections for objects. And the Benin bronze is probably the most notable uh, example of this. Just adding on Steve's point, what is interesting as sort of a historical, cultural look at these claims is that the Nazi era claims really started to pick up, at least in the United States, in our litigation system in the 90s, which is obviously, you know, many decades after these objects were either stolen or looted or sold in forced situations of duress. And I think that movement, as it's continued to snowball and pick up in the past few decades, has inspired both a sort of cultural receptivity and incentivized some litigation in the United States around antiquities repatriation as well. So in all of these repatriations, there's the District Attorney of New York's office that has done some of them involving Yemen. The Department of Homeland Security is involved. What kind of legal theory is in, behind each of these repatriations in terms of when you're talking about a local prosecutor versus the federal government and that sort of thing? It's a great question. So, you know, in general, in the U.S., we'll speak to that. And in New York specifically, we're seeing generally two types of legal processes getting to repatriation. One is, as you said, criminal or um, governmental seizure. So the U.S. government or our local prosecutor's office, like the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which has been very active in this area, decides on a criminal law basis that somebody or some institution in their jurisdiction is in possession of stolen property. And there are certain criminal laws that permit them to seize that property. And it's sort of like the property itself is the criminal. It's a, it's a weird kind of way to think about the law. It's, so it's not always that the possessor of property is then brought to court or accused of a crime. It's just, as we've seen in New York, go right into the Metropolitan Museum of Art, seize a bunch of objects, give them back, whether it's Cambodia or Greece or Turkey or any of these other countries that are sort of on the lookout and cooperating with local government authorities. And that could be the federal government, the U.S. Attorney's Office, Homeland Security, um, or as I said, it could be the local district attorney's office. On the other hand, we see individual claimant countries, like Steve was mentioning, often Turkey, Italy, Greece, that are themselves suing in U.S. court or threatening to sue in U.S. court to get objects back through a civil proceeding. So they actually will sue in their own name, maybe sue the Metropolitan Museum of Art or sue an individual collector. And under the civil laws in the jurisdiction, try to get those objects returned in that process. So those are the two general. And I think the one thing that I would just add, and I don't think it's understood by a wide audience, is the countries that Katie's referring to have what are generally referred to as patrimony laws. And they're laws that basically say that anything that comes out of the ground in modern day, pick your country, Egypt, Turkey, after a certain date belongs to the country. And so the assertion of ownership, uh, it's not necessarily that these objects were in somebody's home or in a museum or in a government institution. The government is taking a very wide sort of look at these things and saying, we are owners of anything that comes out of the land. And even if we're talking about uh, objects that were created during ancient times, during the, say, Greek or Roman Empire, if it comes out of the ground in a contemporary country after a certain date based on this patrimony law, then the country says, we're the owner. And then they proceed as if it 
you know, with something from their home. And the United States now generally recognizes these laws. Often these objects we see in the antiquities looting context or certainly in the colonial era context, which again, at least at the moment, is sort of less legal, were actually sold. I mean, they were often by citizens or residents of the source country, you know, were trying to make money in some variety of circumstances and were selling these objects to either Western institutions or dealers or individual collectors. There were transactions. It's just that under these patrimony laws, those transactions were not permitted, even though they were conducted by individuals from that source country. It's interesting when you talk about crime associated with the markets and whether the objects are looted or improperly bought or whatever, that leads to thinking about risk and something near and dear to the hearts of uh, many of my listeners, oversight of the market in terms of particularly having the market have a BSA, Bank Secrecy Act, AML kind of uh, counterterrorism finance, suspicious activity reporting regime and everything. Tell me a little bit about, I know, you know, FinCEN, we're very aware, decided that the uh, antiquities market did warrant greater oversight. What does that look like for that market now? So, as you know, the Bank Secrecy Act was, in effect, amended in 2020 to include, as a financial institution, antiquities dealer. And at the time, it was determined that art dealers, people who deal in the art market, would not immediately be included within that definition, but that FinCEN, an arm of the Treasury Department, would study the art market and then issue a report as to whether or not the art market should be regulated in the same ways as the antiquities market. I think, as you've alluded to, in February 2022, FinCEN issued its report determining that the art market generally does not need to be regulated for anti-money laundering and terrorist financing in the same ways as the antiquities market did. I will say that among the reasons why FinCEN determined that the art market, at least the conventional art market, putting aside NFTs and digital art and crypto, that the art market did not need to be regulated. There are several things. That One was the infrequent use of cash in high-value transactions the fact that the banks, when you're not using cash, obviously the banks that are facilitating these high value transactions were themselves regulated and subject to bank secrecy, so uh, has certain reporting requirements. With respect to large transactions, at least, the buyers were often known to large galleries and auction houses who themselves were concerned with their reputations. I think maybe perhaps one reason the antiquities market feels more dangerous to regulators is because of the concerns around terrorist financing that were occurring out of the Middle East after the recent or not so recent wars that the U.S. has been involved in there and the sort of political instability that led to the really recent looting and sale of numerous antiquities. And there just were many high profile examples in the United States of dealers who were selling objects that you know were found with great effort to have been recently looted out of the Middle East. And so I think that overlap between sanctioned regimes and individuals and groups and the objects that they were involved in selling into the global market and then the U.S. antiquities market probably led to more immediate feelings of a need to regulate. 
That being said, as Steve and I you know, remind our, our own listeners from time to time, just because the art market isn't regulated under the Bank Secrecy Act, money laundering is still illegal, still illegal to sell to sanctioned individuals or groups. And so those politically, culturally, legally sensitive issues are ever present in the art world. I think we see in the U.S., mostly on the major auction house side, because in Europe, thanks to the, what's called the Fifth Directive that came into effect in early 2020, which does regulate the art market under similar legislative regimes equivalent to the Bank Secrecy Act, I guess I would say, in various European nation states, those big auction houses do streamline their due diligence and AML procedures across all their operations. And so because they're following the Fifth Directive regulations in Europe, their U.S. operations do adopt that kind of due diligence, AML compliance, um, even though it's not required in the U.S. specifically. And I think you see the same thing with art dealers as well, at least the larger ones, because so much art is sold at art fairs in other parts of the world, particularly in Europe and the U.K. And of course, when art dealers go and sell work and participating in these art fairs, they're subject to the very laws that Katie was just referencing. So there's a, a much higher sensitivity, at least even among art dealers. And there are also professionals out there who you can hire if you're an art dealer to do some of the AML KYC investigations that are certainly required in Europe and the UK. Well, that leads nicely to maybe what will be a kind of a tough question because this is how my audience thinks, and this may not be the first way that the two of you think uh, where you sit, but can you sort of reverse engineer for me, what does suspicious activity look like in this market? That's part of where I'm going. And we, we mentioned antiquities out of, for instance, Syria uh, and ISIS using those to fund its activities. What are the telltale signs as you're dealing with these kinds of objects? And then maybe then broadly into some of the other art illicit transactions that are going on. Let me answer a related question first that I think will help set the stage, which is that I think most people who are involved in the art market, distinct from the antiquities market, readily admit and understand that it is a vulnerable market. That does not mean that there is rampant financial crime, but it is a highly vulnerable market because of customs and norms. And those customs and norms are a lack of paperwork a lack of transparency around who the principles to a transaction are. So high levels of secrecy and discretion, an emphasis on personal relationships and handshake dealings. So we have an industry that has exploded in market value, right, in the last couple of decades, but still behaves as if it's the sleepy little industry from 100 years ago. And so we have no contracts, you know, often no contracts are poorly worded contracts. We have handshake deals. We have a lack of understanding about who your counterparty is. And that all just breeds a situation that could understandably facilitate money laundering and the sale of stolen property or property that is not allowed to be sold in, in the United States. And so I just think understanding that background is important. And I would add one thing to that background, Katie, is particularly the art market, the existence of countless intermediaries that facilitate sales, particularly of high value art. You know, in a very simple way, there's a buyer and a seller and, a, and also an old fashioned way. You had a, a seller that maybe consigned a work of art to a gallery or an auction house. 
But now on both sides, you might have multiple advisors who are dealing directly with the principals. And sometimes the advisors are dealing with each other, but they have no idea who the principals are. And that's where we've seen also a lot of the vulnerability. And I think it's, it's really uh, what underlay the original Senate investigation that sort of referred the art market to FinCEN was the use of intermediaries in the sale of works by and purchase of works by a Russian oligarch on the sanctions list at certain auction houses. And I think kind of moving into this red flag question, Kieran, which is a really good one. One of the challenges is that many of the red flags are similar to what is just customary practice in the art market. We're asking less so the auction houses, as we've said, that for a variety of reasons have self-regulated or are regulated in Europe. But, you know, for individual dealers, even very big ones, it's a little confusing, right? Because they're the norms are very close to what they're being told are red flags. And so that could include not knowing who the ultimate beneficial owner on either side of a transaction are. And as Steve said, you might be right in the middle of like 10 parties to a transaction. You have no idea. The money's actually counter to the legal advice we try to give. Money's flowing into like various bank accounts, you know, to get to another one. In the example with the Rottenbergs that Steve gave, it's very common that individuals use SPVs to purchase their work, either trusts or companies. Um, and so even when you know who the counterparty is, the buyer or the seller, that really doesn't tell you who's behind it. And because there's no requirement to find out who the UBO is, and there's a real cultural prejudice against asking, things can fall through the cracks. But all that to say, I think, and Steve will add to this, you know, red flags are paying with a lot of cash, not having payment come from a reputable financial institution. Uh, again, having a lot of intermediaries where you really have no idea who's on the other side of the transaction. Obviously, any connection to countries or individuals who are politically exposed or who are on a sanctions list. So those are obviously things to look out for. Well, that's interesting. And it leads to a question about then this big challenge of knowing who's the purchaser or who's the seller when it does involve a sanctioned individual. And, you know, we're really obviously very keen right now on shutting Russian oligarchs out of being funded by either the sale of art or letting them buy art or whatever, uh, or antiquities. Anything that you can say particularly about compliance with OFAC uh, laws and, and regula regulations that both for the art industry and I suppose any of the banks that may end up in financing a deal or being part of the financial chain in a deal? Well, notwithstanding the fact that at least art dealers here are not subject to AML regulation, right? As, as Katie said, you still can't engage in money laundering, but we're not being regulated. They're obviously subject to uh, OFAC and it's the prohibitions against selling to parties on uh, OFAC's sanctions list. And I think we have definitely seen a lot more sensitivity in this area over the years. Certainly, as Katie suggested, in dealing with the major auction houses here, it used to be the case that you could represent a consigner of a work that was owned by an SPV or some offshore vehicle and keep the ownership of that work entirely secret from the auction house. And that would be totally fine. That is no longer the case. We can tell you from 
representing clients in those situations. And the way that the auction houses deal with it is they basically say, okay, uh, we don't have to tell the public who the ultimate owner is because there are reasons why that can be secret, but you have to tell us. And you have to not just tell us, but you have to give us sufficient documentation that we can then run whatever checks we need to run. And there's a variety of ways to do the checking. And that's pretty well established now at every major auction house here. They keep the information within a tightly controlled group of people, but they know who the ultimate seller is. And I would say now that that is more often true in galleries, you know, with large scale purchases just because of OFAC. You don't as a gallery want to be uh, in a situation where you're selling to a sanctioned individual or, or into a country that is subject to sanctions. One of the challenges, even with um, efforts to comply with OFAC, is that um, as we've seen in, you know, we learned from the Panama Papers and we've seen in um, some of FinCEN's analysis on this issue, is that politically exposed or sanctioned individuals can do business through vehicles of which they are not technically the ultimate beneficial owner. And so even when an auction house or a gallery pushes to understand who the UBO is, that may be just some director, you know, some like trust company or, you know, accountant or family crony who's not on any of these lists. You know, certainly within auction houses, they have a very risk-based system of escalating due diligence. So as more and more potential red flags are visible, then the procedures escalate into greater diligence involving more senior individuals, maybe the general counsel or uh, head of compliance. So uh, they look at each transaction and then make some subjective determinations. I will say, just to add to what we were talking about before, it's relatively easy as a seller now, because it's expected, to go to an auction house and to disclose to the auction house who the ultimate beneficial owner of a particular work is, because you know that they have the infrastructure to keep that secret. I think it's harder uh, still at galleries, uh, which are made up of you know a number of uh, big galleries, a number of directors, all of whom have interests in the market and all of whom have clients who have interests in the market. And I think the legitimate fear among consigners and owners of work is that their identity will be revealed to players in the market to their detriment, not having anything to do with money laundering or sanctions. And so that's just a cultural issue that is still not really completely resolved. So this brings us towards the end of uh, the conversation, I think, and it is a great opportunity to think about where you each see regulation of this market going. You know, you've said you feel as a listener uh, of your podcast series, uh, I know, and you've said it here today, Steve, that the auction houses seem to have a risk-based approach and seem to be doing due diligence, less so with some galleries and some private owner sales and that sort of thing. You know, if you have to anticipate, and I know I'm not, not asking you to exactly look into a crystal ball, where is regulation ultimately going to go with this and what would be good regulation of this market? Well, I think we can look at the FinCEN report and see what Treasury Department identified as potential places where regulation might be appropriate. 
They referred to the emergence of the digital art market and particularly peer-to-peer transactions of NFTs in which there's no intermediary uh, and the ease of the transfer of those NFTs. They also referred to boutique lending firms as possible players in the market that need to be regulated. And then they have a, a final category, which they call complicit professionals, which I've never really completely understood. So I, I think if I were to predict the areas that are more likely to be regulated are in the digital world, in the NFT world, in the crypto world, these are places where I think FinCEN expressed more concern that were subject to um, money laundering vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And that's not distinct from the concerns that exist in those industries outside of the art world. So that makes a lot of sense. I guess I'd just add that it will be interesting to see when the guidance on the uh, regulation of the antiquities market comes out. You know, we will get some guidance eventually. And sort of what will that look like in terms of day-to-day compliance, you know, will be interesting. And, And it's possible that that will help set new norms in the art world as well. We'll wait and see. Well. Steve Schindler, Katie Wilson-Milney, thank you so much for taking this time. And maybe we'll return and talk about that guidance when it comes out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Steve Schindler and Katie Wilson-Milney, partners at Schindler, Cohn, and Hockman LLP, and co-hosts of the Art Law Podcast. I hope you found the podcast compelling and will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud, so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.